Today's sermon comes from Galatians 3, 19 through 29. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. How do you relate to the law? Now I'll help you answer that question a little bit. Let me get more specific. Uh, how do you relate to the speed limit law? Is the speed limit law designed, or do you see it as one designed to prevent you from speeding, to ensure the health of yourself and everyone around you? Or do you see, or is the speed limit law one that provokes you to go fast with no concern for the safety and health of those around you? I remember distinctly my first trip uh, in my consulting job in Charlotte, North Carolina, out of grad school. I worked for an engineering firm. And we were working on a project that was in Greenville, so it was about a two-hour drive, and I was partnered with a senior engineer in the office. His name was Tom, probably in his mid-60s. And I remember my first trip with him to the job site. We went in his car. And uh, he gets on the highway and goes exactly the speed limit. And of course, that means everybody was just blowing by him. And every time somebody would pass him in the left lane, he would honk his horn, scowl his face, and then get right back to the conversation. So we would be in, I mean, just this free-flowing conversation back and forth between me and Tom. Somebody would pass him, pause, honk, scowl face, and then jump right back into the conversation with me. And this went on all the way to Greenville. And all the way back. In our next trip, it just became, that's what Tom does. Now, it's very clear how Tom related to the speed limit law. He saw it as one that was designed to prevent you from going too fast to ensure the health and safety of everyone. Now, there's another way to view the speed limit law. And that would be a more provocative view of it that doesn't prevent you from speeding, it tells you how fast you can go, right? So if it's 75 on the highway, you go 84 because you don't get a ticket if you only go nine over, right? I mean, none, I know none of you are that way, right? Or myself, okay? So we're just talking in hypotheticals here, right? But it's the view that the law actually just provokes. It just, it tells you, it provokes you to go fast with no concern of health or safety of others, right? Now I could run that through a number of examples of how you view the laws of the land. But 
What that does is it begs a deeper question and a more important question. And that is how you relate to God's law that's revealed in the scriptures. How do you relate, how should you relate to God's law that's revealed in the scriptures? And to answer that, we're gonna ask two questions. What is the purpose of God's law? And then how do you live according to that purpose? So let's start with what is the purpose of God's law? Paul lays out two reasons here. And the first is in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. It was added, that literally means uh, to come in by a side road. All right, so think of an on-ramp onto a highway. This is the, the law coming in as an on-ramp onto the highway of God's promise that, God has, or that Paul has been speaking about. Right, the law doesn't get rid of the promise. The law doesn't trump the promise of God. The, the law just comes in as a side road. Right? It feeds God's promise. And note, it says, it was added because of transgressions or because of sin. Now, what does this mean? Does it mean that God's law was added to prevent sin or to restrain sin? Well, that's certainly, that's, that's one of the purposes of God's law is to restrain sin. In fact, it's, uh, God's law says what's right, what's wrong. And of course, in a city like Jacksonville, there are laws of what's right and what's wrong. And then there's punishment if you break a law. And that's actually one of the purposes of God's law, and it's good. Because if that wasn't the case in Jacksonville, the city would be utter anarchy, right? Or the other, another use of God's law or purpose is to actually show you how to live, right? Shows you how life is designed to be lived, right? It reflects God's heart. It reflects God's design. Those two purposes, to restrain evil in society and to show you how to live, are are biblical reasons, purposes for the law, and that's given. But they are secondary to the primary purpose of God's law that Paul is describing here in verse 19. The primary purpose of the law, and he explains it elsewhere in Romans 5.20, when he says, Not now that the law came in to increase the trespass, that means that when God gave the law to his people through Moses at Mount Sinai, that he gave it to actually increase sin, not decrease it. That he gave the law to actually provoke sin, not prevent it. Elsewhere, Romans 7, 7, Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Right? That the law has a way of making people want to break it. And Paul says, here and elsewhere, that's the primary purpose of God's law. Robert Cialdini, he's a researcher, and he conducted an experiment at the Petrified Forest National Park in Arizona. They had a problem at this national park. And here was the problem, listed on a big warning sign in the park. Your heritage is being vandalized every day by theft, losses of petrified wood of 14 tons a year. 
mostly a small piece at a time, right? So in other words, people are coming to visit and they're all just taking the petrified wood out of the park. So they, ho- they put this sign up, which was designed to get at people's morality, right? And produce this moral outrage, right? How dare we do that? And uh, this researcher wanted to conduct an experiment to see if that was really effective. So they took a bunch of little pieces of petrified wood and they seeded a bunch of trails in the park. And on some of the trails, they put a sign up that said, don't steal the wood. And on other trails, they didn't put a sign up at all. Do you know which trails had the most petrified wood stolen? Yeah, of course, the one with the warning sign. In fact, they did this experiment three times as much petrified wood was stolen on the trails with a warning sign that said, please don't steal it, than the ones that didn't have a sign. Right? The law has a way of making people want to break it. That The primary purpose of God's law is to reveal sin and actually to increase it. And there's a second purpose. Actually, it's one purpose, but there's two parts. That's the first part, to reveal and increase sin. The second part we see is in verses 21 to 25. And Paul's gonna explain this through two illustrations, two images that are getting at the same point, right? The first image is that of imprisonment. So verse 21, Paul reiterates what he's been saying all along, which is you can't, the law doesn't impart life. You can't obtain righteousness through the law because you can't keep the law. And then he says in verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So in this illustration, Paul's saying that the law, God's law, is the jailkeeper or the prison cell. We're the inmates. It won't let us go. Now, Normally, being imprisoned is a bad thing, but there are times where being imprisoned is a, is a good thing. And there's actually a great example of this from Paul's life. A number of years after he wrote this letter to the Galatians, he was arrested in Jerusalem, and he was imprisoned by a, a Roman guard, or a, 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 the Roman guard. And, and while he was imprisoned, there were his enemies that made a vow to not eat or to not drink until Paul was assassinated. And when this word got back to the Romans, the Roman commander ordered 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, this massive escort to take Paul to protect him to go to Caesarea, ultimately to Rome. And so what you have here is Paul was still imprisoned, but his captors were actually saving his life. He was imprisoned, but these captors were saving him so they could safely deliver him to Rome. That's the argument Paul's making here, that the law had had served as a a safety to God's people, kept them in prison safely until they could be delivered to Christ. Until they could be delivered to Christ. Listen to how one commentator, Finley, describes the situation. The law was all the while standing guard over its subjects, watching and checking every attempt to escape but intending to hand them over in due time to the charge of faith. Law, the stern jailer, 
has after all been a good friend. It has reserved him for this. It prevents the sinner escaping to a futile and elusive freedom. Paul says the law keeps you imprisoned graciously, protects you and keeps you imprisoned until it can hand you over to Christ and keeps you from running to some other elusive freedom that you think will bring life that can't. So the law imprisons you until it can hand you over to faith, hand you over to Christ. Then he gives a second illustration, verses 24 to 25. Another illustration, same point. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That word guardian, it's the Greek word a pedagogue, and it simply describes, in the Greek world, it describes that person that basically protected and took care of a child from age six to adolescence. In, in Greek families, particularly wealthy families, that was just common. You'd have a guardian, pedagogue, who would watch your child. And the, the pedagogue was part babysitter, part chaperone, part disciplinarian, but the, the, the pedagogue was not the educator. So the, the, the guardian or the pedagogue would take the child to school, drop them off to be educated, and then afterwards pick them up, take them back home, right? Just watching over them, caring for them. What Paul's saying is the law is the pedagogue. It's the guardian. It's not the educator. The law was never designed to make God's people better and better and better and better until God would accept them. The law was designed to show them their sin. So, and, then, and then feel the punishment of it and lock them into that place until it could deliver them to Jesus Christ, right? When verse 25 says, until faith came, of course there was faith in the Old Testament. Of course God's people put their faith in God's promises, but the object of that promise, Jesus Christ hadn't come. And so the law literally protected them, was, a, was protective custody of God's people until Christ came and they could be handed over to Jesus Christ. And so the era of law finished, and the era of faith in Christ began. And just like the the guardian or the pedagogue worked his way out of a job, same with the law. The law worked itself out of a job, right, when it handed the people over to Christ. John Stott says it this way, God used the law to shut us up in prison until Christ could set us free or to put us under tutors until Christ should make us sons, right? See, the law has the purpose of of keeping us safe until Christ saves us. And then we're put into the hands of Christ. So what we see here is the one purpose, two parts of God's law. This is the primary purpose of God's law is to reveal sin increase sin and drive you to Christ. That is the purpose of God's law, the primary purpose. Reveal sin, even increase it to drive you to Christ. Now, if that's the purpose, then it begs the question, how do we live according to that purpose? What does it look like to live a life that's consistent with that primary purpose of the law? What does a life look like? And this is critically important to answer because 
a misuse of God's law leads to drastically different behaviors than the right use of God's law. If you misuse God's law, it will lead to drastically different behaviors than if you rightly use it. So what's the result of misusing God's law? The answer is tucked away in verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. As we've seen in this Galatians letter, one of the major problems in the Galatian church was racism. Racial tension between Jew and Gentile. In fact, we see it blow up in chapter two when Paul gets to Antioch and Peter's eating with the Gentiles. And then what's he do when the Jews show up? He backs out, he pulls away, right? Just highlights this tension in the church between Jew and Gentile. Now, why was there tension? Why was there this tension between Jew and Gentile? Why the racial tension? It's because the Jews were misusing God's law. They were using it to justify how right they were and how wrong everyone else was. They were using God's law to justify how right they were and how wrong everyone else was. And what we see Paul doing here and the argument he's making is that the primary purpose of God's law is not to show you how right you are. It's to show you how wrong you are and how deeply you're in need of a savior. And you can see why if you misuse God's law to be some way of justifying yourself, elevating yourself morally, ethically, you can see how it creates division. Because now suddenly I am better than that person. Look how I'm behaving, look how they're behaving. I am better. We've talked about it throughout this letter. It's called self-righteousness. It's trying to gain a righteousness on your own. The only way you can attempt to gain that is through God's law and misusing it to show how right you are and how wrong someone else is. And this is what the Jews were doing with the Gentiles. They had elevated themselves. They had uh, relegated the Jew, uh, Gentiles to second-class citizens. But what I want you to see, this was all born out of a misuse of God's law. Not adhering to that primary purpose, which is to show how wrong you are and how desperately you're in need for a savior. If you don't understand and embrace this first and primary purpose of God's law, then you will always misuse the second and third use of God's law, which I've already talked about. The second use to restrain sin, third use, how you should live. If you miss the first, then those second and third pieces become a means by which you justify yourself, by which you elevate yourself, which creates exclusion, which creates clicks, which creates judgment. I'll say it this way. The law is intended to act like a mirror that reveals self and all of your sinful inadequacies, not a microscope to put others under. Okay? The law, God's law, is to, is to be a mirror for self, not a microscope for others. But if you miss that primary purpose, then you will, it will become a microscope. It will always become a microscope under which you put everyone else. And that leads to pride, judgment, division. You know, it's interesting. When you look at the three categories of division in verse 28, 
Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. Those were the primary, most common categories of division in the first century in the early church. Race, rank, and sex. Right? Race, rank, and sex. Those were the three ways that people were divided. In fact, listen to some of these comments from early century writings. One's from a, a Gentile, one's from a Jew. Listen to this. And this, this first one is a, a prayer giving thanks to God from a, a Gentile man, sometimes attributed to Socrates. Listen. Give thanks to God that I was born a human being and not a beast, next a man and not a woman, and thirdly a Greek and not a barbarian. Now listen to this. This is a Jewish benediction from the first century. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a foreigner. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. This was alive and well in the first century. And what you see today is that our common lines of division are no different. Race, rank, and sex. Right? Race, right? Rank and sex. Same kind of division, right? And, and here's the reality. When we use God's law as a microscope for others and not a mirror for self, when we punt on that first primary use of the law to reveal our sin and drive us to Christ, and we use it as a microscope to put everyone else under, the reality is we put everyone else under our own version of God's law. We, we don't, you know, we think we're putting everyone under God's law. It's some version of his law. It's a perversion. It's a distortion. We, we elevate certain sins to that's really bad, and the other ones we just kind of dismiss. We, we rationalize to play it in our favor. And so even when we misuse God's law and we use it as a microscope to put someone under, under we're putting them under a, our own version of it. In 1992, Dennis Lee Curtis was arrested for armed robbery in Rapid City, South Dakota. Now, this guy was a moral thief. Let me tell you why. When the cops arrested him, they found a sheet of paper, a little sheet of paper in his wallet with a code on it. Listen to this. This is laughable. Listen to it. I will not kill anyone unless I have to. I will take cash and food stamps no checks. I will rob only at night. I will not wear a mask. I will not rob mini marts or 7-Eleven stores. If I get chased by cops on foot, I will get away. If chased by a vehicle, I will not put the lives of innocent civilians on the line. I will rob only seven months out of the year. What? And number eight, I will enjoy robbing from the rich to give to the poor. What a moral thief. I mean, he's up there when it comes to thieves, right? This guy is top of the line. You see the point. When he got 
put before a court of law, he wasn't held to his own standard or his own version of being a good robber. He was held to the law of the land. When we misuse God's law by putting others under the microscope of it, it's, it's never, it's always our version of it. It's always our own version of what, you know, God's law plus. That's what the Jews did, right? The law that the Jews were, were hanging over the Gentiles was God's law plus a ton of additional laws they had come up with. It was their own version. And we do the same thing. So, if the result of misusing God's law is pride, exclusion, division, right? Race, rank, sexism, all of that. If, that. if that's the result of misusing God's law, well, then what's the result of rightly using it? What's the result of rightly using it? Look at verse 26. For in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. See, God's law levels the playing field. God's law levels the playing field so that it is level at the foot of the cross. And what we learn on the level playing field from these verses is two truths. Number one is that the story of the Bible is the story of God creating one family, right? We see that. In Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. If you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring. One family of different race. One family of different rank. One family of different sex. So, one family of different ethnic races, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Middle Eastern, Indian, on and on, right? The nations of our world. One family, different socioeconomic classes, blue collar, white collar, rich, poor, country folk, city folk. And of course, one family of different gender, male, female. The only glue that can hold such a diverse people together is Jesus Christ. That is the only glue and you see that when you use God's law rightly, meaning that the primary purpose of it is to reveal your sin, even increase your sin, and drive you to Christ, you're driven to the one person that is common amongst those who claim Christ. I said it earlier in the baptism. We are a different people across all those lines. Race, rank, sex. Jesus Christ is the only person, the only thing we hold in common. And so diversity comes together around Christ. And when you're misusing God's law and punting on that first and primary purpose, then God's law becomes a means and a justification to, to divide over differences, to divide over this and that because you're left having to justify self and you use God's law to do that. But when that primary purpose is in place, right, now you're brought to a deep, deep humility because your sin is revealed, it's increased, you see your need for a savior, and that deep humility is what brings oneness around Christ, and it produces a beautiful, humble, and loving community. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller talks about one of the big problems in marriage, 
and that is self-centeredness. Listen to what he says. If two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. You see what he's saying? If you use God's law rightly in your marriage, then it will reveal your sin and drive you to Christ. If you misuse God's law in your marriage and you use it as a microscope to put your spouse under, you know where that leads. A marriage that uses God's law as a mirror versus a marriage where each person uses God's law as a microscope produces vastly different marriages, and you can attest to that. When God's law is a mirror for self, it will cause the marriage to thrive because both spouses, sin is revealed and they're both driven to Christ and that is where joy is found. In Jesus Christ, that's where oneness is found. Now, I would broaden this beyond marriage to say, if the people in a community, if the people in a church community each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in this community, or I'm gonna treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in this community group. I'm gonna use God's law as a mirror, not as a microscope to put others under. Then you have there the means of a tremendously beautiful, humble, loving, united community. Let's pray.